This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get on to the episode. Welcome to the Big Ed Idea Podcast, a podcast for those looking to change the world through education. Each week, we bring you a new idea, however big or bold it is, that has the potential to disrupt, upheave, or remix education. Now here's your host, our dad, Ryan Scott. Hello, hello, welcome back, or welcome for the first time to the Big Ed Idea Podcast. Um, I am Ryan Scott, the leader of this whole thing, and I'm super excited to welcome you or welcome you back. Um, this is going to be a very fantabulous episode. Um, I'm super excited about this to get to talk about the psychology of education. So I'm super, super, super stoked to welcome my friend from all the way on the other side of the country, Oregon to be exact, Mr. Don Berg. Uh, Don is a researcher. He is an alternative ed practitioner. He is a leader and an author. As executive director of Deeper Learning Advocates, he is on a mission to embed the psychology of learning and policy. So policy stops undermining learning. Wow. I can't wait to talk about that. He has over 20 years of experience leading children in self-directed learning. So, Don, welcome to the Big Ed Idea Podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm super excited to welcome you, man. I This little, okay, I got to ask you, what does this mean that you are on a mission to embed the psychology of learning and policy so policy stops undermining learning? What exactly do you mean? I think I know, but I want, I want to. <laughs> sure. Uh, the the essence of it is is that the uh, the way that education is organized at higher levels, at the policy level, pretends as if it's just all you have to do is get a knowledge, a fact out of my head and into, and into your head, and I've done my job as a teacher. Yeah. And of course, that's absurd. Yeah, that's that's a crazy oversimplification. And so they've organized schools in ways that actually undermine the, the, the essence of learning is, okay. is we, we need to focus on the, the, like you say, the psychology, but it you know, comes out of the self-determination theory, which is you know, decades of research into how human beings actually work uh, and motivation and engagement. And what they found is that, that for instance, um, you know, we, we talk about freedom and things like that in this country, and we talk about, uh, you know, we have this way of talking about uh, how adults need to be free to do a bunch of things. But then we put kids in a place where they have almost no freedom. Almost no freedom. Yeah. <laughs> and that's confusing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, there's when you, when you think of education as just getting a fact out of one head and into another, then the way that schools are organized is actually kind of a logical way to do that. Sure, sure. Except that it doesn't work that way. That's exactly. Um, and and so since we have so many people uh, in legislatures and various policy-making bodies who've never been in the classroom, they may be parents, um, but they're not in there trying to you know really work on on instructional expertise. Um, they think that 
you know, all you have to do is, is get in front, get some obedience and, and show them what to do. And it's not like that. Um, as educators, as people who deal with children on a daily basis and have to like really think about a bigger picture of what their education means. Um, we learn real quick that if all you're trying to do is deliver your, you're missing the boat. So, and actually other teachers actually do the, the, the right, like what I recommend, I have this uh, thing I call back to basics 2.0. And the first step is teach governance before academics. Now, every teacher already does that because on the first day they say, here's how we're going to work together. That's right. You know, they might say, you know, I, I have a set of rules for my classroom or they might say, hey, what cl what classroom rules should we have should together? We have? Yeah. And the idea is that that teachers automatically realize that you have to do the governance first. Now, the problem is that sometimes they forget that the governance is actually a prior like an order of operations thing. They get so excited about doing their lesson and doing the 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 content delivery, if you will, um, they get so excited about that that they forget that they have to really keep ensuring that that governance piece is actually functioning and working and 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 operating the way it needs to in order for that academic piece to have the effect that your great instructional expertise can have. Um, and so that's that's where it's it's uh, there, there's a tricky bit, and that's also where at policy levels, if if their only accountability for success is a test score and particularly a high stakes test score at the end of the sure. year sure you know that drives behavior that drives classroom behavior in ways that does. doesn't help the educative process absolutely does yeah i love it um i'm probably going to oversimplify this um <laughs> my my uh crush brene brown um mm. she likes to say you know unless you're in the trenches getting your ass kicked um don't make decisions and and that, <laughs> and I think what you're saying is a lot of these people that maybe spent you know some time in a classroom, although 20, 30 years ago, think that mm -hmm. they know what education's all about. And, and yeah, I agree, man. And I, I'm excited to get into this whole topic today about self determination theory, about um, mm -hmm. psychology, about all this other stuff. Um, but Don, I really want to model for these teachers this idea of connections before content. And so that's why I always start with a couple getting to know you things. Um, and the first thing I always do, um, because Don Berg, yeah, you know, you're this education dude, but you're also <laughs> so much more than that. So if you would give us three words that describe what your life is like right now at the Berg house. Uh, me and my partner are pursuing the dream. That's it. Pursuing the dream. That's, that's what we're doing. She, my, my partner actually, um, uh, got tuned in. She had a, uh, spent 40 years as a professor of mathematics. Oh, very cool. But when she was a teenager, she read, I don't know if you've heard of this book, but it's called Summerhill by A.S. Neal. It was a global bestseller in the 60s and 70s. Okay, I'm a writer. And it down. was, yeah, yeah. Um, and it inspired hundreds of schools in the U.S. and all over the world, actually, to try out this idea of actually giving kids real freedom in their education. Very cool. So it's it's a school that still exists. I was actually visited there. There was a, they had their hundredth. They're celebrating their hundred years in existence, and um, you know they started in in the twenties. So yeah, right. Um, so they um, you know had a conference to celebrate their hundredth, and so they had like. Uh, people from 47 nations and, you know, like uh, almost a thousand people from 47 different countries all coming in wow, very cool. and excited about this place. Um, and, and so 
she was turned on as a teenager to this idea of like, you know, school could look very different. Absolutely. And then she went into academia and <laughs> taught mathematics. And it, and she did her bit, you know. Yeah, and yeah. so, so her and, and, and my path was I went through regular public schools. You know, I got a degree from a private college, but, but public school all through K-12. And, uh, and, and discovered at the end of it, discovered a passion for working with children. But then realized, like, looking back at my schooling, I didn't want to just switch sides of the teacher's desk, like going from one side of the teacher's desk yeah. to the other. Yeah, that wasn't going to make it a better experience. And sure. I, I don't think I was good at school. Don't get me wrong. I was good at school. I, I got into an elite college. You know, that was the that was the thing. Right. But it didn't really serve me because I ended up leaving college because uh, uh, I was like purposely like I didn't know why I was there. I didn't know didn't have a passion for 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 what I was actually learning. It was just like that, that I was put on these rails and that was just the next stop on on the train, you know. Um, so then I left school for a while. That's where I really dove into, got into the self-directed learning stuff. And, and I actually homeschooled other people's kids for about five years. And, uh, and so through that process, really tuned in like, okay, things really could operate differently. So having done that, then I went and got back and finished the degree in psychology uh, and, then, and then have set off and recently released a new book uh, called Schooling for Holistic Equity, um, really focused on this, the psychology of self-determination theory and how it needs to be informing how schools actually work. Because if you look at Summerhill and these schools that where literally kids can choose not to go to class, and this is K-12, this is all the way through, and you know, they get every day they can say, yeah, no, I don't feel like going to class, and they don't. Um, how, do, how does a school, like a regular school, learn from that model? Because uh -huh. nothing looks like what they do when, when you look at it, you know, just looking at the surface. But that's where self-determination theory actually gives us that bridge from these radically weird, different kind of ways of doing things to what mainstream educators do. You can start to understand, oh, the reason they start with those, how do we do our rules? Well, that's because governance is a central you could think of it like a social emotional skill, or you could think of it as, you know, there's a number of ways to think about it, but it comes down to, we got to get along together. We got to figure out how to work together and what we're going to do together. And, and Summerhill organizes it one way, mainstream schools organize it a different way. Yeah. But it doesn't mean they're not doing in a sense, the same, Similar. Like the, the fundamental thing, supporting that autonomy, building those relationships. Because, and, and let's be clear for the audience that self-determination theory is about, supporting autonomy, competence, and relatedness as primary human needs. So needs like air, water, food, sleep, shelter. Now, four of those, air, water, food, and shelter, if you don't get those needs met, you're going to die. Okay. Now, sleep, you don't die from a lack of sleep. There are other dysfunctions that may follow from a lack of sleep that may kill you. You're but right. the sleep itself, the lack of sleep itself won't. What sleep does is it increases your anxiety, it makes you depressed, creates forms of psychological distress. And so just the same, same kind of symptoms occur when your autonomy is not supported, when your relatedness is not supported, and your competence is not supported. And let's be clear about competence in particular. It's the perception of competence, not the reality, not the circumstance. of Like you may be a competent you know, reader, okay? But if you don't feel competent, then your needs not being met. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, right. It's like, like, yeah, I know how to read, but if I pick up a book in Greek, you're like, I don't know how to read Greek. I know how to read English. <laughs> it's two different things. So I'll feel very incompetent looking at Greek. And your motivation goes down. 
Exactly, exactly. Is that there's when meeting those needs is that is the is the causal factor that matters the most for the quality of learning that's going to follow. Man. If your needs are not being supported, you're not going to have the quality of motivation you need to really learn deeply. And then, then what's going to follow from that the motivation is the engagement's not going to be there. So and then engagement leads to those outcomes that we want. So self-determination theory is really clear. There's a model. It's causal. It's not correlational. <laughs> you know, it's not just it merely happens together. Like you look at something like grit. Yeah, there's nice correlations with the but there's no causal model for grit. Now grit might be a fine model or idea to pursue, but my suspicion as someone who studies self-determination theory very deeply is that grit is sort of like happiness. Pursuing it directly, you might not achieve it. But if you pursue good things and you know a quality environment, things like that, then it's a byproduct. May follow. Right. It's a byproduct, exactly. Yeah. It's not the thing you should pursue. It's you should do some other things and then grit becomes a byproduct, like happiness is a byproduct of of getting your needs met, for instance. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Okay. So at the Berg House, you guys are just living the dream right now. Is we what we are making what our you're best. Saying. Making your best. I get it, man. Yeah, yeah. So at the Scott house, um, for my listeners, if you've listened before, I've got four daughters. Uh, my oldest is in college, a sophomore. She's, uh, she's gone, went into the family business of changing the world. She wants to be a social worker. Um, and then I've got an 11, eight and six year old, um, all girls. And, um, yeah. So what's going on in my house right now? Well, we are in the middle of select soccer season. I am coaching my year old. Yeah. I get to be the select co soccer coach. I've coached for 12, 13 years, and this is the first time I've ever coached select uh, with my oh, dog. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. Um, Don, I've got a couple getting to know you questions. Sure. So, um, I, so I picked this one because I see you as a Jules Verne fan. Um, <laughs> so if you were to own a time machine, would you go forward or would you go backward? That's a really tough choice. Yeah, me, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I would probably go forward, though. Yeah. I think I would probably favor that. Um, just because my curiosities about so many things are just like, yeah, man, I wish I could know, you know? <laughs> yeah, are we going to be out. around here? Yeah, yeah, there's that, too. There's that, um, too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm pretty confident we're going to be around, but I want to find out how we're going to be around. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. And to what level are we going to be around? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Okay. My next, my next one, who is, or, or what is your favorite band? Oh, interesting. Um, so you pop into your car or truck, right. whatever you turn on the radio, turn on Spotify, put in a CD, put on an eight track, whatever you do. Um, who is going to be the band? Um, interesting because it, you know, of course it has changed through the years. Always. Yeah. Uh, I, I had my doors phase. Oh yeah. My pretenders phase. And, okay. Okay. Um, I actually one of the ones that Bobby McFerrin phase, that was actually the, okay. one of the, one of the earliest concerts I went to, okay. um, when that wasn't attached to like school, um, <laughs> uh, but that I, you know, was like, Oh, this sounds interesting. Uh, I actually saw him twice. I saw him both times in Portland, but one uh, was just him. You know, it's like, he's amazing. Cause he's him alone on a stage and it's an incredible concert. 
with with no special lights or you know no 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 set. It still he sounded good. Black stage, it's amazing. And then he did Voicestra. So he had he got about eight, 75 or eighty different vocal artists, and then conducted them like an orchestra. But it's all oh, wow. truly vocal. Cool. It was mind blowing. Uh, yeah, just. So, so yeah, virtuosity. But uh, right now, actually, I don't. I don't even know what I would do right now. Um, music is is something that that is fun, but it's not something that I focus on. Okay. Uh, so I actually like like our playlists on on in our kitchen are the ones from you know like like I gathered years ago when I could still gather music onto one and that's iPod. Okay. And... <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's we don't okay. even stream. We don't stream things. But but so it's it's going to be old classics. Although although I have to admit, um, oh oh I do have an answer now. Uh, Throw it out there. Postmodern jukebox. Yes. Postmodern jukebox. Yes. I just love their their stuff. Yeah. That yeah. would be that would be the current thing because actually okay. I do that and I realize now is uh, when I'm working at my computer I have my uh, phone stream things and and so i just put it on my i have a youtube mix uh tape kind of thing you know like i just put it on a shuffle oh, yeah. and off it goes let then it I, go then when i need that little visual distraction i just tune over to the <laughs> watch a little something you know very cool so. i would say so over the course of my 40 years the the one that's been like the constant has been john lennon the beatles but mm, right yeah. now Right now, I'm reading a, a autobiography of Dave Grohl's, so I've really been, I've really been tuned into Foo Fighters lately. Um, mm. That's that's who I've been playing all the time. Um, so, Don, what questions do you have for me? So you're a principal, right? So I'm an assistant principal. Yep, I'm assistant in the principal. admin Fair game. Enough. Yep, yep, yep. So, so if your team at your school, the whole team. Could accomplish only one thing. What would that be? That one thing. Okay, and that's super easy. First thing that came to my mind. Um, I want every student, every staff member, and every parent to feel valued, seen, and heard. Period. Mm -hmm. I feel. Mm -hmm. I think once you lay a a strong foundation of that, especially I'm in an alternative setting. Um, all mm. of my students have been expelled. Um, out of one of the traditional, out of one of the, I think we have eight middle schools in our district. Mm. So those students are pretty used to feeling hopeless oh, yeah. and feeling, um, you know, there's all kinds of, of uh, adjectives you could use to describe them. But I truly feel if those kids feel valued, seen and heard, boom, their motivation would be off the charts. So that's yep. my yep. number one thing. <laughs> Excellent. My number one thing. However, like you talked about earlier, I've yet to meet anybody at central office that says, you know what, we're going to give you as much time as you want to develop that culture of valued, seen and heard. No, it's always, you know, you know how it is. The the yeah. elusive state testing and the elusive state metrics that whatever. Mm -hmm. Anyway, mm -hmm. I digress. <laughs> Well, actually, that that the the second question I had was, if you could change one thing about the policies that constrain you as a principal, as an assistant principal, or just at the school, um, what would you change? And okay. I think there's a <laughs> you're already pointed in the direction. So I am. Um, you know, I I kind of created this whole podcast thing because um, I've never met an educator that didn't have an idea of how to make the system better. 
mm-hmm. but I've mm-hmm. been in buildings where that's not, sometimes that's not very um, embraced by administration or, or others. And so I think if we just listen to our people, you know, we would be able to make this a whole tons better. Um, but if I was to change policy, it would be starting in high school. Um, starting in high school, students would job shadow or do mm. um, either job shadowing, something more um, being able to, you know, because when I when I got to college, I thought I wanted to be re- a marine biologist, but mm. I had never had the chance to actually shadow a marine biologist. Yeah. Uh, I thought I wanted to be a archaeologist as a kid, but I never got to actually talk to an archaeologist. Um, Mm -hmm. With Mm -hmm. all of the technology that we have these days, there is no reason why every kid in secondary education cannot hook up with a mentor somewhere to be able to ask them questions about their preferred, you know, and then to be able if you if you were able to to be able to do it in your own build in your own community. For, yeah. for for part of the time um but that i think that takes us shifting our system away from um knowledge and to, towards skills which mm-hmm. is is slow coming yep yep yeah but you know yeah. that's that's that mhm mhm right on yeah one of the things that that i've been so so of course i do a lot of research um and and one of the things that there's this fascinating thread of research uh, funded, I think, by Carnegie. Anyway, big funder, um, and 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 they're looking at schools that claim the mantle of deeper learning. Yeah. And so they have this thing they call the canopy. And so what that is is they've they've asked all the people who are well known for deeper learning and saying, who else do you know in the space? And so they have a list of hundreds of schools all over, all across the country that are doing things really creatively in the space of deeper learning and a bunch of them are really doing these out-of-the-box models uh, where they're you know like one of them the entire school operates like a design studio so that means that the school goes out into the community finds a business or a nonprofit that has a challenge a brings that in and then the entire focus of that year or or whatever period of time i don't you know i don't know that it's always a year it might be just the semester or the quarter or whatever system they're on and then the students do the design work so they i they love do the interviews they do the whole thing and and so the entire school operates in this really interesting uh way that's not at all about subjects it's not yeah. about time schedule or you know it, it's just organized so differently yeah. um so that so you know that's a great kind of looking at where there are models of doing really interesting stuff with the community, bringing in mentors, having mentors regularly part of it. Um, you might heard of uh, big picture learning. Yep. Um, they have really strong relationships with with various businesses in their communities just for that purpose. You know, really said, ensuring that their kids have the ability to get out and do stuff uh, in the real world or see stuff in the real world, even if they, you know, some, sometimes, you know, you can't. They, 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 there are dangerous things in the world, but, <laughs> you know, they can at least go and see them and talk to them and, you know, be, be in touch. Like you said, finding an adult in that world and, and being able to pick their brain. Yeah. That's. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's, so before we get into what you what you think the problem is, I think everything you and I are saying is that it, it gets back to this idea 
Um, and we've been talking about 21st century knowledge for right. 23 years now. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, definitely. So I'm super excited and super interested, um, Don, to jump into this next question, because I think it's going to get us going down this road to really start talking about what your idea is. Um, mm -hmm. What do you see as the major problem in education that your idea hopes to solve? So the, the, the simple version is just disengagement. Like, yeah, that's it. That's yeah. the whole problem. Now, yeah. it's a complicated problem. Um, there's, there's tons of research behind it, you know, like the, the, the patterns of disengagement have been well established in multiple different frameworks and things like Gallup did a bunch of student Tons of them, yep. for, for yep. decades or for at like least 20% of students. Now. Yeah. Yeah. 50% are okay. self-report being disengaged. Yeah. Um, and some portion of those kids are, are actively, actively disengaged, disengaged. disrupting. Yeah, it's the actively disengaged is probably about 20%. Um, so they're actually interfering with the learning of others. That's how disengaged they are. Yeah. Um, and that's, it's, it's, it's weak. Gallup's a little bit weird because they don't actually uh, put plot their year-to-year -year results. And so if they had been doing that, which I went back and figured out, collected them, and it's been getting worse. Um, in, in, the, in the 10 years they've been doing their work, it has steadily been getting worse. And... And it's changed like um, 13 percentage points from worse. And 9% of that 13% is going straight into that actively, actively disruptive yeah. category. So it's getting worse and worse. <laughs> so and so it, disengagement uh, I was, was identified. Say, oh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> sorry, bud. No, I was just going to say, um, and I would imagine, you know, you, you've spent time in alternative ed. Um, okay. I'm spending, I'm spending time in more of a, a, a punitive setting for alternative right. ed. And I would say for, for students like the ones I deal with, the majority of those are actively disengaged. Right. Uh, exactly. So you have an entire, That's why they got expelled. You're exactly right. You're exactly yeah, right. I mean, that, that they're the, they're the, the epitome. They're the, the example. They so, the so, and it turns out that engagement and it's converse disengagement are well studied. We have models. We know how it works. And it's no mystery. So in 2015, Carnegie funded a, a report called Motivation Matters. And so it's a big national report. And they basically said, you know, there's, a, there's not only an achievement gap, there's also an engagement gap. Amen. The engagement gap is solvable. We know how to do that. Just we haven't <laughs> because of some confusion in our system. Um, and so so what I'm aiming at is is I take self-determination theory as my foundation. Like, OK, that's the that's a solid foundation upon which I build. Mm -hmm. And the way I build on that is I'm taking uh, going a little bit beyond just the individual psychology. Um, so engagement as a model, as a way of thinking about it, has some different facets to it. Um, if you've read any of the stuff on it, you'll see a three-part model that's all about behavioral, cognitive, and emotional engagement. And 10 years ago or so ago, there was um, a, an additional piece added called agentic engagement. Now, the reason that the first three, cognitive, emotional, and behavioral, are those are kind of the, the in-the-person the, in part of it. Sure. The agentic engagement is where it becomes a social phenomenon. 
Agentic engagement is putting yourself, your identity, who you are, your opinions, your, your um, ideas into the educative space to improve it for yourself. So you put yourself into the environment and it's a social interaction. It is a social act, not an individual. It's not an in the head as a lot of people think of psychology as something in the head. Uh, it's that's misleading, but <laughs> so when you have this idea of engagement, what you have right next to it is the motivation piece because the motivation determines how that engagement is going to show up. That's exactly right. And you, you know, the, most people are still under the impression that it's intrinsic versus extrinsic, which is a poor way to think about it because um, there's the, in, the extrinsic stuff actually is a spectrum. And so there's aspects of extrinsic motivation that are great. Um, there's, uh, I think it's identified and integrated motivation are extrinsic motivations, but they're great for learning. And, and then intrinsic motivation is at the extreme of that. But on the other hand, you have the external regulation, which is the rewards and punishments yep, right. and the uh, introjected motivations, which are the ones that are sort of like the guilt and the shame and stuff like that still coming from outside. Um, and extra. those are still negative. Those are, those are very poor motivations for learning. Now, one of the other things about that complicates the picture is that it doesn't matter if you start with extrinsic and even external regulation. Like if you think about a toddler, you do not try to intrinsically motivate them to deal with traffic. That's exactly right. Right. You hold their hand yeah. and you make them hold your hand because yeah. you're not going to let your kid die in traffic. Okay. So you start with external regulation, but then they realize, wait, these adults in my life really get concerned about this particular arrangement of things in the world, traffic, <laughs> roads, cars, things like that. Safety. Well, they eventually pick up on, oh, that's a thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We don't, we're not, we're not, you know, we're, we, we didn't evolve to understand traffic, but we learn that traffic is a thing. So we're holding their hands when they're three, but when they get to be 13, 14, 15, you try and hold their hands, they're going to be insulted. They might hurt you for trying to do that. That's right. Okay. And it's not because they're, you know, somehow out of touch with reality. It's that they have taken on the concept of attractive as part of, that's part of who I am. That's part of how I am as a capable person in this society. Capable people cross the street without holding their hand of an adult. You know, like, like adults don't hold hands to cross the street together. That's not a thing. <laughs> So when you get to be, you know, when you've matured enough and you've internalized traffic, you demonstrate your capabilities by not holding hands with other people. Now, you can get a teenager to hold a three-year-old's hand, and they will love that, actually. Sure. Uh, they, they, will, they will gladly be the a responsible adult for a child, um, but don't try to hold their hand. Okay? So, so we have this really clear picture of how this works. And it, it, it holds true for all human beings, no matter their age, is you have to support their autonomy, competence, and relatedness. You develop, by doing that, you get better motivations. Better motivations lead to better engagement. Engagement leads, is the learning process that you need to get the outcomes you want. So that's clear. Now, if you have a kid getting an F grade in some class, good luck on knowing what to do about that. 
you have ideas because you're a teacher. You say, oh, well, it's, it's math, so we must, you know. But there's not a clear model of what exactly you should do to get those steps to happen. In psychology, we do know that for motivation and engagement. We're there. We have the model. Now, we've known that actually for decades. As, as, as a science of psychology, self-determination theory has been around since the 70s. Okay? Been around a long time. Really well established. Why has it been so hard? Like even the founders of the, of the, of the model who operate in Rochester, New York, have worked with the school districts for decades. And yet they haven't brought about systemic change in Rochester, New York. Okay. Why is that? And that's because there's something beyond the psychology that we need to be dealing with. That's where we get into policy. Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan, fabulous psychologists, but they're not politicians. They're not administrators. They're not name a, name a role. companies. Yeah, yeah. So there's a piece more, and that's why I do my work in my, my latest book, Schooling for Holistic Equity, is about, okay, how do we think beyond? We, we know the psychology is solid. Now, how do we go a little bit beyond that to start thinking about how does that psychology happen in an organization, in a school, in a classroom? And, and how can we start to think about the system in a way that can alter its dynamics such that it'll change? Um, and, and that's where uh, one of the things I'm working on is, so, so uh, as you're familiar, we mentioned just before we came on, we, we mentioned the, the HOPE survey, for instance. Yeah. Um, the HOPE survey is a climate measure, okay? And it's the only climate measure that I'm aware of that actually has some basis in self-determination theory. Yeah. However, it's not collect, it, it's, it's, as with all the climate measures, is it's gathered maybe once or twice a year. Right. Um, now, now, all the other ones, like you, the Panorama is a big climate. Uh, we do that at our and, school, yeah. Yep, pa uh, Panorama, Youth Truth, that's another one that's up mm -hmm. and coming. Uh, non-profit one, unlike Panorama, which is a for-profit, uh, and there's others, there's a bunch of them, but almost all of them are collected maybe once a year, sometimes twice a year if they're, you know, particularly enlightened. But that's not enough for a teacher to operate on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, okay, I get something once a year. Well, you've got a new set of kids this, you know, <laughs> usually they're done at the end of the year, so then by the time you've got a whole new set of kids, and you like, how are you supposed to learn from that? You can't, the, 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 the cycle's too, too long. So I'm creating what I call instant climate. So it's a measure based on self-determination theory that teachers can use for themselves, by themselves, and the kids answer anonymously, so there's no student information involved. Um, but really getting in and saying, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find out what's the climate this week. And then with the information I get, I can get very specific recommendations about exactly what need is not being supported or is being thwarted or, you know, depending on which way it goes. Um, and then, I give you a list of things that says, okay, here's autonomy support. Here's how to not thwart their, their needs for autonomy. So you can have very, and then you come up with some idea of, okay, I'm going to change it. And then in a week, maybe two, sorry, in a week, maybe two, you come back and do the same measure again. Absolutely. Not this, exactly the same, slight variation, but you're getting the same, looking at the same elements and say, oh, okay, did I do better on autonomy this year or this week? And is this per, um, per student or like per your class? It'll be your class because the students are actually answering anonymously, okay. which is important because in psychology, we've discovered that when you ask people a question, they interpret your 
being as if you expect a certain type of answer. It doesn't matter what you're asking. Which makes They're sense, gonna, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, you have expectations, especially if you're measuring your own students, they want to please you. I mean, or they want to defy you either way. But but if you're not doing anonymously, they have some way that they're going to skew their answers because it's you that's asking. So you have to build in these anonymous uh, anonymous answering system uh, in order to make that happen. So it's... Um, huh. it, yeah, so 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 that's something I'm working on. Uh, the prototype should be available, you know, within the next few weeks or months. Um, that's very interesting. Yeah, because and, and then the other piece, as, as someone who's an assistant principal, um, one of the pieces would be that the teacher can use that, but then you could also go in and be that more objective, you know, kind of validate whatever they're getting results and say, okay, well, if I come in and ask these questions, what do we get? You know, and they still have they still get actionable data, something that they sure. can assess. Okay, here's a list of ideas for how to move forward. Um, but then they can also come back and, and retest and things like that. And, and another thing you could do, uh, a principal could do, is assess their staff and say, what kind of climate do we have as a staff? You know, and, and the way the thing, the initial prototype is set up to ask about not only the, like the student or the, the, the subject's need, how their needs are being met, but also how is the person trying to provide support for those needs doing? So it's actually about a specific person, like you know, Mrs. Jones. How is she? Is she supporting your autonomy well or not? Uh, and so they can give that feedback as well. And that would be, you know, that that's going to be a little uh, stronger if somebody else besides that very teacher is doing the asking. So, very cool, very very yeah. cool. So okay, so the problem in education that that I'm hearing you say is that we are not focusing enough on engagement. Right. Um, and the engagement ultimately comes from the motivation, right? And the motivation ultimately comes from self-determination theory. Right, but the, the, the support for those psychological needs. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so for, those, for our listeners out there that aren't familiar with self-determination theory, um, you know, I'm very familiar with, you know, the work of Daniel Pink, um, oh, extrinsic, yeah. instri extrinsic, instri ex intrinsic, um, that type of stuff. I stumbled across self-determination theory doing my own work on hope theory. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, and I really, really like it, but if you could, could you give us a brief overview of what self-determination theory is for my listeners in case they've never heard it before? Yeah. So, so in particular, I want to, uh, I'll, I'll frame this in terms of Daniel Pink's book drive, which was a bestseller. Yeah. And so a lot of people are very familiar with it. And, and so the way he said it was, um, you have a need for autonomy. He just said autonomy. That's great. He yep. used the same word. <laughs> uh, we agree on that. And, and so, so the, the, this is all the central hypothesis of self-determination theory. So it's right in line. So autonomy. We have a need for autonomy. Just like I said before, it's primary. Got to do it. Now, he said mastery, but right. we're going to, you know, that's, that's a synonym for competence. Yep. Uh, as long as you're understanding it's a perception, even the autonomy is a perception, not a circumstance. So, so all three of these needs are perceptions of your autonomy, your competence. Now, mysteriously, Pink said purpose. Purpose, right. Which he referenced self-determination theory, the founders, DC and Ryan. He you know, cited all their things. And mysteriously, he threw in this word that has nothing to do with it. So I have no idea where he came up with that. Okay. Because relatedness is the third need. Yeah. And he was writing for a corporate audience. Maybe he thought relatedness was too soft and gushy for 
corporate America or something. I don't know. But it misleads people in some some uh, odd ways uh, when you say purpose. Uh, now, interestingly, since he wrote that book, uh, some research was done on uh, meaningfulness as a potential primary need. And somebody said, oh, meaningful. So, you, know, you could just take his thing and say purpose and meaningfulness are kind of similar, right? So some people said, well, what if meaningfulness is a primary human need too? Add it to the list. Well, they started doing the research. And what they found was that uh, and, and there was another need that was postulated called beneficence or benevolence, right. and just serving something bigger than yourself, right. which right. had already been, been, that research had been well underway for a while. And uh, it turns out that uh, it's a secondary need, not a primary one, because nothing okay. bad happens if it's thwarted. But this is important for the meaningfulness, because when they did the meaningfulness research, they, they controlled for autonomy, competence, relatedness, and beneficence. Now, controlled means that they did these you know, they, they, they did this longitudinal research and then they controlled for means they mathematically said, okay, here's what we expect the effect of autonomy is and competence and relatedness and, and, and uh, beneficence. And when you control for all those, you explain 100% of the variance. You explain everything that needs to be explained and there's nothing left over for meaningfulness to explain. So they've accounted for all the change that happened and meaningfulness was the way the way it's interpreted is say meaningfulness is just a byproduct of meeting the needs for autonomy, competence, relatedness, and beneficence. And then you get meaningfulness. Which makes sense. Which makes sense. But now yeah. that what that does to Pink's way of saying it is he he was being um redundant in a way, but he neglected re relatedness, so he's leaving out an important piece. Okay. Um so so I would discourage people from citing Pink anymore. Just leave Pink okay. out of it, <laughs> okay. um, because he well, did, when yeah. we know better, we do better. I mean, exactly, that exactly. happens all the time with research and science and and precisely. All that. You know, um, I, I point to this. My first, uh, probably first five, six, seven years of school, I focused substantially on the extrinsic motivation, yeah. uh, carrots and sticks. And, and it worked for a while until I started to realize that the kids that it wasn't working for were the ones that were not motivated in the first place. And, that, right, right. you know, and that's when I started to really see this thing about relationships and forming mm -hmm. relationships with these kids and being more like a mentor to exactly. my students than as a teacher. Um, yeah. And, you know, as a, as a current and former high school soccer coach, um, very, mm -hmm. very interested in the motivation and stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. that's what I love about this self-determination theory. Um, mm -hmm. cause it speaks to me and it speaks to the point that I think every educator that's listening to this episode can say, um, the kids that come into your room that are motivated. I mean, let's be honest. Um, the teacher, <laughs> if we're really going to be honest here, a teacher doesn't have to do tons of work for the kids that are motivated. They're right. going to pretty much excel. Um, you know, we talk about upward mobility in the United States. It's pretty much what you're born into is what you become. Um, the right. ones right. that the ones that move up on the social ladder are the ones that are the motivated ones. But what you're saying, Mr. Berg, I think is what you're saying is that if we want these kids to move up the social scale. Um, if we want these kids that come into our buildings unmotivated 
then we have to start weaving the psychology more into our buildings. Absolutely. And 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 the great thing about self-determination theory is it actually arose out of behavioral theory. Huh. The research so that was done Skinner's in the 70s. Skinner's like cousin? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, in fact, one of my, well, ironically, I'm I'm just too... One of my professors actually was a colleague, was, you know, like a, he had a photo of him and B.F. Skinner's and oh, wow. both of their wives. Was know, he on in his Skinner wall, box? You know. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've literally used Skinner boxes. Wow. Um, uh, so so you, the great thing about self-generation theory is it explains why behavioral theory actually has the effects that it does. Yeah. Says, yeah. Yeah. Okay. There are certain circumstances where external motivators, external Absolutely. regulation, for sure, is a good idea, and it's particularly if the tasks are really boring. Yep. And they don't require much cognitive effort. Absolutely. Under those which, two circumstances, especially which, if they come together. Yep. Which Daniel <laughs> Pink talks about. Yes. Yes, he did. He does. He um, talks about that. Yeah. What 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 I would like is if Daniel Pink just wrote an update and corrected that one yeah. little gross error, because uh, he's a great storyteller. I I, I like his writing. Uh, so, Mr. But, Pink, so, if you're listening, please do that's that. That's right. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so so explaining why the kids are going to have certain responses to it is really clear, and and to respect B. F. Skinner, he one of the things he said was you know you you, you can't project into the black box of the human mind. And and so, you know, respecting him as a scientist, as a scientific assumption, he was very helpful to the field sure. to say, you know, stop imagining things in the box when you don't need to. Sure. Now in the 70s, they did this great experiment. You've probably heard, heard of it. Uh, they gave kids, uh, uh, they've done, very many variations were done. So it could have been the crayons, it could have been paint. No, 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 this is different. But I have I have critique of that one too. But yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, so so they gave them, you know, whatever whatever art materials and that's kids, you know, small kids, uh, spontaneously just like go for it. You know, they they start creating art at an early age. Uh, with no no prior you know, like there's no there's no real way that it could have been learned. Oh that's yeah. Kind of absurd. They spontaneously will pick up the Absolutely. things and start drawing. Um and what they did was then rewarded them for doing those activities. Now, when they do that, behavior, the, the, the core of behaviorism says, if you reward a behavior, you should get more of it. And if you, you know, like do the opposite, you know, punish it, you Negative, should get less. Yeah, yeah. Now, these are, these are the common person's words for these. They have technical terms. I, don't bother with that. So anyway, uh, but essentially, if you reward, you should get more. And then what these kids did was they got less of the behavior. You reward kids for doing something they already love doing, and then they start doing less of it. Now, that blew the minds of a lot of behaviorists. Um, and so that's why it was replicated many, many times. And so they figured out, yeah, yeah, this is really a thing. So part of what they had to do, and, and this is what self-determination theory came out of, is said, we're going to posit one thing in the black box, just one. We're going to call it the self. The self does a calculus about the situation they are in and says, if you're having to pay me and reward me to do this, it must not be very valuable. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I'm going to do less of it because clearly right. that's not a good idea. Right. Right. And so, but if you uh, then 
create conditions where their autonomy is supported and their competence support. You know, like they, what this is where this came out of is there was a whole, all these threads in the psychological research already trying to talk about what became autonomy, competence, and relatedness. They had different, you know, locus of control and I've there was a variety that. of kind of yeah. models that you've probably heard of. Um, but self-determination theory was the, where they said, let's put this all together and say, okay. And then the, the real foundation of the theory is what they call cognitive evaluation theory. So it's a sub theory within it. And it says, cognitively, we evaluate situations. And, and part of what we do is we emotionally react to a situation. That's the fast part of the mind, but then the mind can also kind of cogitate on these things, but we evaluate what's going on. And then we make decisions. We, our motivation is a result of these evaluations that we're doing non-consciously. We're not thinking consciously about it. We're not thinking, oh, this should be better or worse. It just happens. It's just like, bam, we have a reaction and we go, Nah, thanks. Good. You know, see ya. <laughs> I'm I'm not into this assignment, or or you know, you 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 turn me off on that. Or, wow, you're doing that. That's amazing. Let's do more of that. You know, like like that's that kid. You're you're you know the motivated one. It's like yeah, you hardly have to exert any effort because they're so they're going to suck the marrow out of that experience and learn from it. Well, that's what self determination theory did. Was it built on that idea of let's not put anything unnecessary in the black box of the human mind? as scientists and they said but we need one thing to explain human behavior and that's a self that evaluates and figures things out and then and then from there they there's actually six mini theories now one of them is the basic psychological needs part um, there's others which i won't go into but but that's the central thesis is that that supporting those primary needs is evolved is a way that humans evolve to take advantage of social situations and to kind of get the best out of those situations as well as put their best into those situations. So, so part of what happens, the reason you have kids turning off is that they're saying, I need to conserve resources until I'm in a situation that actually helps me, not hurts me. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why you have that disengagement in a situation where my, you know, I love that you're saying, you know, they can be seen and heard, you know, and honored for who they are. Then, then they're going to contribute who they are. They're gonna they're gonna show you who they Absolutely are, and, they are. And, and and you get out of the way because they're coming through. That's exactly. Um, and so it's it's one of those it's it's a spiral of either reinforcement or disincentive, um, depending on which way you're going, that creates those patterns that you see. And and the solution to it is very straightforward: needs, support the needs. And so when you say, in your non-technical way. Got, they got to be seen. They got to be heard. They got to, you know, have their be honored for who they are. What you're really saying is, it's our job to support their needs. That's right. That's exactly right. So and um, so, being precise about that's going to be really helpful because you can be more clear about, oh, is it the autonomy piece that's on, on short supply right now, or is it the relatedness piece? Because that's those are two very different things. In yeah. fact. There's a conf- there, there, for a while there was kind of confusion in the literature saying, well, they're opposites, aren't they? And it's like, well, no, they're not. <laughs> uh, they feel like opposites because we have the, an individualist American society, and then we have you know collectivist Chinese society, and then you know do they work the same? Well, there are cultural differences, <laughs> but Chinese need relatedness and autonomy. Americans need autonomy and relatedness. <laughs> Doesn't matter. There may be cultural variations in how it shows up, but everyone needs it. So then you have to adjust what you're doing and figure out, okay, the behaviors you're going to use to support those might feel a little different than, you know, what you might 
uh, you know, building relatedness. I mean, teachers, most teachers are really, if they're, if they have a conscience and, and are good at what they do, <laughs> uh, then they're, they don't they know they have to build the relatedness. Um, it's, you figure that out intuitively one way or another, if you're in teaching long enough, uh, and, and you're pursuing improvement. Sure. Um, I will say that, you know, once somebody's burned out, uh, then they, then they're going to, they're going to have, they're, they're having the same problem as those kids are, is they're, they're having their needs thwarted. So yeah. they're tuning out. Yeah. Or, and actively disengage sometimes. Exactly. Exactly. Give, give them all worksheets. You know, the, the famous movie, uh, with the class, uh, you know, the hand out the worksheets and then he sits behind his newspaper and, you know, <laughs> and then actually in, in, in the movie, he actually ends up like dying in class. <laughs> and no one notices for a Nobody while because knows. he's still behind his paper and everybody keeps all the kids keep filing in and you know doing the worksheets and <laughs> like filing out he's been dead all day so uh so Mr. Berg, i've got two questions that i want to ask you and then we're going to start right. to um we're going to start to wind that wind this thing down um if i am a teacher mm -hmm. and i'm listening to this podcast um what is one thing that i can do as soon as I get into my classroom to try and take this whole self-determination theory and put it into practice, what's one thing that I can do? Um, so I would just, the thing I always start with is relatedness. Okay. Is go in and, and, and whatever your challenge is with a student or with your class as a whole, um, is see if there's a way that you can build relationship. Is that going, because that'll move the needle on a lot of things that don't seem like <laughs> they, they necessarily are a relatedness issue. Um, but if relatedness is at issue, that tends to be one that's kind of a keystone, kind of a, a crux for a lot of things. Is, okay. um, and, and, you know, what was I watching? Oh, I was watching Abbott Elementary uh, last night. And and the the naive first year teacher or second year teacher is like uh, you know goes gets this difficult student in her class and then she's like okay well I'll just you know you know sit down with her and have a little conversation and you know and it, and it 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 there's actually some truth to that <laughs> um, now of course what she's actually dealing with is a kid who's very sophisticated in her you know defiance and and manipulation of the situation mainly because she turns out to be super smart. Uh, and okay. so manipulating for her is just a game. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I literally was one of those kids who, um, caused problems because I was too, you know, kind of me and Clark jet <laughs> and, and there was a third student, I can't remember his name right now, but you know, we literally would finish our work, you know, any kind of test or anything, we'd finish it as fast as we could. We'd compete with each other, see who could finish it fast, fastest. Right. And then we're finished before all the rest of the class. And so we like start causing trouble. Yeah, know? absolutely. So literally that's. That's that's my world. Um, and so my first ever like real teaching assignment was when I was in third grade, third, fourth, anyway, third or fourth grade. Um, I was sent down to tutor first graders in reading. And, and so I, I attribute all of my my passion for education to being a smart ass in class and and literally being assigned to leave the class to help other kids learn uh, in order, you know, as a management strategy. And there's nothing uh, which wrong was with that. Great for me. Yeah, that was, yeah. It was actually fabulous. Um, it was great. So, okay. Okay. So you heard that, teachers. F 
focus on that relatedness, focus on that building that relationships, uh, if you know nothing else, uh, and then start reading the literature on self-determination theory. Um, my second and my last question before we head out the door, Mr. Berg, if you happen to find yourself in an elevator with, with Dr. Miguel Cordoba, who, as if you know, is ah. the uh, Secretary of Education for the United States, Yep. Um, you have got, let's say you've got 90 seconds to describe mm -hmm. to him why he needs to take self-determination theory and apply it to every school building in the United States. What are you going to say? <laughs> Go. Um, I would say, you know, teachers need to know what's going on in their classroom. They have formative assessments and they have summative assessments. If we can get, uh, and, and right now, they only get climate measures in a summative format. We need the formative climate assessments. Let's put instant climate, that's what I call it now, <laughs> in my, my tool. Um, let's get instant climate to be part of how teachers operate on an everyday basis. Um, and what you're gonna see is that that targets that climate piece in a way that they can change in a few weeks the climate of their classroom, not something that takes a whole year you know, to, to get that change. Um, so, so, so the big picture is we need to change the data that's running our education system. I'm not saying academic data should be removed. I'm saying it needs to be supplemented. It needs to be, yep. there needs to be a prior assessment. Absolutely. Now, ESSA put climate into federal policy. So that's one of the pieces you can use in your, in your accountability. Now it needs to become not optional. Uh, it needs to become something that's federally required is that climate needs to be required in the yep. federal legislation. Yep. So I would say to Miguel Cardona, yes, that's a first step, but it's not enough. So if you've got an opportunity, push the climate piece because you need to establish that climate in order to produce the academic gains that you want. And as you know, it's not just me. Carnegie and the people who did the motivation matter studies, engagement is a solvable problem. Academic achievement, the engagement gap is a solvable problem. Achievement gaps, a lot harder. We don't have clearer models. But we can use the science we have today to solve the engagement gap if we can get climate to be a little more like an, uh, to be something that we actually push on. Oh, I just saw a study, a survey. 95% um, of teachers in this survey recognize engagement as a problem. Yeah. And it's something that, that must be focused on, something that has to be done. And so, you know, it, it's not me just saying that. It's teachers all over the country are saying it. People who recognize it, the big funders, the people who study this, it's all clear. So we need to start to use policy as a lever to, to close that engagement gap first as the first priority so that the engagement gap can follow. Well said. Um, as somebody that also likes to read literature on organizational psychology and stuff, um, engagement is also an issue in the, in the workplace. Absolutely. Uh, they're finding out. Uh, they're finding out, I think it was Simon Sinek um, who stated that people used to go to church to find their, um, and again, I'm going to throw this sense of purpose, but I think we could say related. Yep, yep. Um, yep, yep. But now that's not the case. Uh, also, he talked about the fact that more workers are disengaged at the workplace, but more engaged in philanthropic things outside mm -hmm. of the place mm -hmm. because they are looking for, like you say, the relatedness. 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, Dr. Berg, I literally could talk about this. I mean, psychology is something I wished I, I mean, I, part of me wants to get my doctorate in psychology. Um, mm, nice to be able to apply it. I think we do not talk about positive psychology nearly enough, especially mm-hmm. in the lens of education in the, in, in this world. Um, I appreciate you so very much for coming on tonight and talking about um, engagement and self-determination theory and um, your ideas. I want to make sure that I give you a chance because I know the folks that are listening to this are going to want to pick up your book. So if you don't mind, talk about your book real quick, talk about the name, where they can get it, what it's about. Um, Yeah. So it's called schooling for holistic equity, uh, how to manage the hidden curriculum for K-12. So my focus is on understanding, you know, we, the idea of hidden curriculum, the the basic idea has been around for over a hundred years, but the the language for it arose in the sixties. And we've, you know, people recognize that there's something hidden going on in classrooms that is affecting things, but we're not clear on exactly what to do about it. Absolutely. Um, And so I'm proposing that using self-determination theory as a foundation, we can build and say, well, let's, let's actually get really clear about what a hidden curriculum actually is and what it means to manage it. So, so Mm -hmm. if we're getting a data stream that actually includes how are your needs being met or thwarted? Uh, how are the people who are supposed to support your needs doing with that? Um, and then uh, eventually looking at patterns of motivation, patterns of engagement, is looking at those system level pieces and saying, okay, we can shift this. Um, and so, so that's what I mean by the hidden curriculum. It's the policy stuff that that inadvertently limits what can happen. Um, and and the my website is holisticequity.org. Uh, so pretty straightforward. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a ton of videos there. I have a lot of information, uh, and and nearly everyone mentions self-determination theory because that truly is the the the, the basic science, the most fundamental science uh, that everything is built on. Uh, and, and in fact, I look at things like when I look at organizational um, uh, literature or any other literature, I'm thinking through the lens of self-determination theory and saying this is what we know for sure about how human beings work. Um, and, and then I, I build on from there saying, okay, well, how do we learn from what, uh, you know, say, uh, uh, Mintz, I forget is, is, uh, there, there's an organizational guy from a while back who looked at, you know, organizations said, oh, here's how they're, orga- here's how they work. I'm like, okay, great. Let's look at his work, but let's look at it through this lens because we know this is solid. What they're doing, you know, they, they're maybe just talking about co- correlations rather than causation, but I can think about, oh, here's how this is going to work because I can see as, as need support as a mechanism, here's how, like, for instance, um, uh, servant leadership, as an example, just a term that's out in the in leadership sure. organization. about it all the time. Right, exactly. So servant leadership, why does that work? Well, it's going to work because it's a way to have someone in a higher position actually recognize the needs of their subordinates and say oh my job is to support your needs yeah so let's think about that absolutely exactly and then we can also think about using some of these organizational psychology stuff and say oh okay so when you embed that in policy in the right way you're actually taking advantage of the organizational dynamics to make sure that this is all working in a clear and consistent way 
Um, so, so that's that's where my book is. It, it's big. Let's admit it. Uh, <laughs> uh, it it's it's uh, quite a piece of work, um, but it is meant to be comprehensive in some ways because I have to kind of go back to first principles in terms of sure. learning and education, because I have to kind of, you know, there's a there's some conversations that we have in our public conversation about schools that we need to you know kind of question. Okay, one size doesn't fit all, but but one self-determination theory might be the size that does fit all. Sure. Like there's a universalism that is true in education. Sure. True. It's not like the academic side. Sure. But there is something that is universal in there. And so we need to revisit what we mean by one size does not fit all and be clear about some things do matter do. for Excellent. everyone. Yeah. And we need to distinguish that from the things where, oh, if we're supporting all their autonomy, that doesn't mean we need to deliver the same thing to every single person because they don't all respond to our autonomy supports in the same way. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, so, so that's the overview of the book, um, and a lot of resources on my website. Um, a lot of videos and things you can get. A lot of you know you can you can dive in there and spend a long time there uh, without having to to buy the book. But I actually have that. That was my seventh book, I think. Um, so I have other books as well. Uh, I, I'm promoting this one mainly right now uh, because I kind of took a bunch of books that I'd written before and. Smushed them together, together. one book and <laughs> said, you know, this, let's be comprehensive because this is really, you know, important for teachers to understand, for, for leaders to understand. Um, and, and let's start to build up a, a way to think through what these issues really are. I love it, man. I love it. And, and I'll say this as a, as a first time author, bless you. You have written seven <laughs> books. Um, I just looked it up on Amazon. I actually just ordered it. It's going to cool. be here in two days. Um, for my listeners, it's on Amazon. Uh, $28 for the book uh, for paperback right now. Uh, it's on Kindle. The hardcover's uh, a little bit more expensive, yep. expensive, excuse me. Um, but yeah, it will be here um, for me in a couple of days and I'm super excited to get into it. Yep. And uh, you can, you can go to any of the major booksellers. You can go to your local independent store and just ask for it and they can order it. Um, so it's, it's it, that that's one of the reasons I shifted from self-publishing into uh, what's really a hybrid publisher, but my publisher purpose press is where I got it done. And, and they've really helped me, uh, you know, up, up my game in terms of that. And, and I, you know, keep, so you can get it anywhere. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Well, uh, Don, I'm going to close us out. I'm going to get us going out the door. I appreciate you for spending, um, the evening with me and, and talking about something you're super passionate about. Um, it actually, it, it, completely overlapped with a lot of the things that I'm super passionate about. Mm -hmm, um, great. You know, the, just this idea that I, I truly believe kids do the best that they can with the skills that they have. Um, and that kids come into the building every day, wanting to be uh, deep and effective learners. Um, yeah. But there's always, there's normally some type of psychological roadblock that's keeping them from doing so. Um, and so I love your idea and in, in this work in self-determination theory. Um, it's really shifted my idea. You know, in the beginning, I was definitely a behavior Skinner, BF Skinner person. Um, yeah, yeah. Then as I, as I learned a little bit more, I moved a little bit more into the extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. Um, mm -hmm. And now I'm really leaning on this self-determination theory. And so um, to my listeners out there, I know you already know this. But motivation is the key to getting your kids to learning. And I would definitely um, urge you to get on Amazon or go to 
Barnes and Nobles or go to your independent book book dealer at your uh, hometown and buy this book. Um, connect with Don. He knows what he's talking about, obviously. Um, <laughs> and, and Don, just just thank you. Thank you for spending um, this time with us. Truly a pleasure. I appreciate your your making the opportunity available. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and for your listeners, I mean, I'm available through my website, so you can literally talk to me awesome. <laughs> just like we are now. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Okay. And to my listeners, I'm going to close us out like I love to do. I'm going to leave us in the words of the immortal John Janoski, who was my grandfather. Um, he was a six foot six Polak who worked his life in blue collar. Um, but every time he would leave me or I would leave his house, he would say, Ryan, until next time, I will see you in the funny paper. Thank you for hanging out with me here on the Big Ed Idea Podcast. My hope is that this would be a conversation, a meeting of the minds and a space for one person's vision to inspire the passions of another. However, none of this can happen without you. So let's be change agents together and build a better future. Please subscribe or reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Come to the conversation with your passion and together let's build something awesome. Until next time, I'll see you in the funny paper.